Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. All of you to whom the term applies, and there's a multiple different applications. I was thinking, this is my 59th Father's Day. 33 of them as an actual dad, as a, for my son, Brandon, and my kids, and seven of them as a granddad now, and somewhere in that, probably the larger number, uh, being a spiritual father, stepping into ministry, but it's my 59th year, and I thought, you'd, you'd think I'd get the hang of them by now, but the culture's changing so fast, and everything's, uh, you know, really moving forward, and uh, so... In praying about the message that we wanted to, to put today, some of the guys on staff said, let's do real men, real men, real men. And, and I love their heart. I would have normally jumped in, but I thought that is a risky, risky title in today's culture because we're risking either it being you know, confused uh, or, or we're, we're risking even with some people it being a trigger word for some kind of hate speech because we've got so much gender confusion and gender dysphoria and you know, part of the risk is that for a long time now, there's this, been this toxic masculinity that's almost become the same word. It's almost like you can't use the word masculinity without somebody just automatically saying, oh, see, now that's toxic. Now, see, that's wrong. That, that's an imbalance somewhere. It, it becomes a little bit confusing because, again, the gender fluidity, the gender neutrality, and if you don't know what those words are, then you won't. Don't, don't worry, it's going to find you pretty soon. But that's kind of a, a narrative that's picking up and really being forced on our culture. And again, uh, cancel culture hates anything that goes against whatever their narrative is. And so these are trigger words. But I was thinking about, uh, as they were saying, and I just kind of smiled and I thought, you know, my dad who's been home to, uh, with the Lord for about 15 years now, he would have loved it. He would have been so proud. He was from this different generation where the lines were really clear. It, it's not that there weren't you know, men who were toxic, but the lines were clear and the, and the foundational truths were obvious. Nobody in society was arguing with that. So it was much easier to separate the guy, the man, from the toxicity, from the bad behavior, and to say, no, this is a good standard. But that's, been, that's disappearing now, and unfortunately... Uh, and tragically, I'll say, it's even disappearing in large uh, segments of the church. I want to read an article to you, uh, or from, from, from an article to you, that was just posted this past week in Charisma Magazine uh, on the 16th. And the title of the article by Michael Brown was, How the Triumph of the LGBTQ Activism has negatively impacted the church. Now, I'm not getting off on the LGBTQ tangent, but that activism is the root for a lot of other things that are going on. One of them is this whole gender confusion, the gender neutrality, the gender fluidity, and all of those kinds of terms that are quickly becoming buzzwords. So here's some of the things that Michael Brown writes. You can go find the article if you want to read the whole thing. It says, American culture has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. Before that time, Christianity was generally respected by the society while homosexuality was disdained. Today, the tables have turned to the point that almost anything LGBTQ plus is celebrated while the church is largely denigrated. In short, if gay is good, the church is bad. <clears throat> he goes on to say, consider American views on the same-sex marriage. 
Gallup polls first began polling American views on this in 1996, at which point 27% of the public supported legalizing same-sex unions. Again, I'm not getting off on the LGBTQ or the same-sex tangent, but that's the root system of the gender disqualification, the gender confusion, the gender fluidity. So in 1996, 20% of the public supported legalizing this, but in 2022, that's just 26 years later. That's one generation. One generation later, 72% of the people now uh, support uh, the legalization or the approval of same-sex unions. This is an unprecedented shift in public opinion, but it's not surprising in light of the fact that so many Americans have friends, relatives, or loved ones who uh, profess or who identify in the gay lifestyle. Number two, we have a, a former president who endorsed gay marriage in 2012. The Supreme Court redefined marriage in 2015 to include same-sex marriage. And the media has been bombarding us with gay positive stories for the last few decades. In other words, this whole narrative has not only been normalized, but in many cases, it's been federalized. It's become law. <clears throat> he goes on later on to say, according to the Gallup polls, uh, there is one group of people still opposing same-sex marriage. Well, you'll see in just a moment, one primary group, but there's actually at least a second group, and that would be the Islamic religion. Uh, they, don't, they don't buy into this either, but, but the focus he's, he's, he's uh, talking about would be Christians. He said, Americans who report that they attend church weekly remain the primary demographic holdout against gay marriage. But listen to this. With 40% in favor and 58% opposed. That's only an 18-point margin. Translation, we're, we're now the bad guys, the church. We're the opposition. We're the ones standing in the way of progress. We're the small-minded, Bible-thumping bigots who say yes to religion and no to the world's definition of love. That's how much, how, the world, how much of the world perceives us today, especially the younger generation, which has grown up in a very different world than did previous generations. Again, the shift from 27% to 72 was over a 26-year period. That's one child growing up in a different system that's sending a different message. I'm bringing it to a close here. Today, Christians and Christian beliefs are openly mocked and ridiculed, while day in and day out, we hear about gay, lesbian, bi, and trans pride, especially here in the month of June. Our conclusion, the problem for true followers of Jesus is that the Bible hasn't changed. And if we want to be in solidarity with the Lord, we find ourselves at odds with a prevailing culture. At the same time, we don't want to drive people away from the Lord by making opposition to the LGBTQ plus activism our primary cause, as opposed to the Great Commission, which is our primary cause. Nor do we ever want to appear or be mean-spirited, judgmental, or hypocritical. So what then shall we do? First, we must ask God to fill our hearts with his love for those who identify as LGBTQ+. Then we seek to share that love with them face-to-face. -face. Second, we make clear in our messages that all of us are fundamentally flawed. And that's why all of us are in need of a redeemer. Third, we make a distinction between an aggressive agenda of any kind and the individuals that would be affected by that agenda. And number four, we determine to hold to biblical standards regardless of public opinion and regardless of how much these standards are challenging our own lives today. 
The world so desperately needs the fullness of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed to live it and to proclaim it. Well, I've been looking closely at articles like this, both on the secular and the sacred side, trying to track what's going on and, and recognizing that it's not uh, different than what the Bible said. It's, it's amazing how much the Holy Spirit gave us an insight as to where things would be headed and, and what things would look like in this day. And I've been praying, Lord, keep me strong, keep me straight, keep me sensitive. I don't want to compromise the word of God at any point for any reason. The stakes are way too high. Not only that, I I don't want to drive people away or incite emotions on any side unnecessarily. And we can't help but, but, but navigating this. But I want to keep moving forward and I want to keep moving straight. And I was thinking about all of these things just a few days away from the Father's Day message. Uh, and saying, Lord, you know, I want to make sure I'm on balance here. Uh, but this past Wednesday, I met with a small group of younger men, younger than me, that are part of a connect group that Debbie and I joined. Some of them are sitting here today. And uh, all of them are husbands, all of them are fathers, uh, most of them 20 plus years younger than me. Uh, but one of the things we talked about, we asked, what are some of the topics and what are some of the discussions that we think would be relevant for us to have as we meet throughout the summer here? And I just, I, I didn't tell them, uh, I'll tell them next time we meet, and I'm telling some of them now from the platform, I, I wouldn't have had the words to tell you how proud I was of these guys. Because they didn't talk about, hey, let, let's talk about how to be healthier. Let's talk about how to, how, how to be happier. Let's talk about margins in our life. Let's talk about the economy and how to be more successful. Although none of those topics would have been bad. They would have been great. But almost in the same breath as the question came out, these guys unanimously said, we, we want to we talk about how to be better men. We want to talk about how to be better husbands. How to be better fathers. How do we lead our families well in the days and the challenging culture that we're in? And I walked away feeling, you know, renewed in my strength, renewed in my focus, and so privileged to be a part of what I would consider to be a group of real men. Men that are facing, not running away with, not running away from, but are men are facing the, the culture in perilous times, but they're doing it with great courage and with a heart for godliness and a heart for truth, saying, Lord, help us to keep moving forward. So if you brought a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because as I was kind of preparing for this message, I thought, I don't know how to preach a message about a real men, two real men, any better than the Apostle Paul did. He just did a phenomenal job in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the theme on the back of your commemorative or your challenge coin, not to be confused with anything that would be used in a card game of any sort, <laughs> the theme verse on the back says 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 2, uh, I would like to extend that all the way to verse 7, and you'll understand why as we work our way through the text this morning. Uh, now, this would be pretty important for you to get, to get some context so you can get the heart behind it. Uh, the fact that we're going to look at 2 Timothy means there was a 1 Timothy. That's pretty easy and pretty obvious connection. And 1 Timothy is really important because that's where we see that this young guy, Timothy, who's believed to be in somewhere in his early 30s, he's been working alongside the Apostle Paul for many, many years, and he's finally given his first solo assignment, and it's a huge one. 
He's given the assignment to be the senior pastor of the church at Ephesus, which at that time arguably was the largest church, some scholars say, in the world. We're talking about several thousand members, and that, that could be a conservative number, again, when you look at what scholars are, are trying to, to estimate or guesstimate. And so, understandably, here's the spiritual father, the mentor, the coach, who's the one kind of sending him off by direction of the Holy Spirit into this assignment. And so, 1 Timothy is, is a letter that's full of some basic instructions, kind of a father and a son, like, hey, in case I'm not there, or because I won't be able to be there, don't forget about these kinds of things, or let me give you some more, some more insight into these kinds of things. And so Paul writes a, a number of things that are phenomenal for the church today. He talks about how do we order our church worship, where's the priorities, and what do we need to make sure we're included in there. He talks about how to choose church leaders, and the interesting, the criteria that he gives is not what most Christians would think. He talks about how do you deal practically practically with diversity in the church, not limited to race, but also economics and educational and, and background and, and culture and all those kinds of things. And he also weaves through the whole thing, how do you do all of this without compromising sound doctrine or jeopardizing your personal testimony? I mean, it was quite a feat, but he puts all this in the first letter. However, two years later in 67 AD, uh, everything had dramatically changed. And Paul now writes a second letter because Emperor Nero has just gone crazy. And that's not kind of a light descriptive. I mean, many scholars, secular and sacred, talk about his insanity. He's just gone crazy, and he is persecuting the church. I don't mean just making fun of them or making laws against them. He's arresting them. He's torturing them. He's openly and publicly killing Christians. And as a member of the largest church perhaps in the world, the Ephesian Christians, and especially their senior leader, Pastor Timothy, were like high-value targets on the kill list. These were the ones that they were looking for. And as a result... You've got church members in the Ephesians church that are deserting the Lord literally to save their own lives, to try to save their business, to try to spare any of their family members from the impending doom that Nero's imposing on, on people of the Christian faith. And not only that, but you've got church leaders who are now getting into a panic. They don't trust Pastor Timothy's young leadership. He's only been doing this a couple years. He's a pretty young guy. He's not super experienced. And they don't trust his leadership, so they're rebelling against his leadership. And they're coming up with all kinds of different versions of the gospel, different versions of the things that Paul's preached to them in order to somehow save the, the, the diminishing church and bring a little comfort to the scrambling people, but at the same time trying to posture themselves so they can have a little more footing and a little more grip to lead the church. All of this was going on, and you can only imagine what young Pastor Timothy was feeling. A couple years ago, he's trying to figure out how to put it all together. Now he's literally wondering if he's going to be taken in the middle of the night, or if he's going to step out of his door only to be arrested. And here's a young guy, he, he obviously is in over his head. He feels super anxious, he feels confused, and he's really afraid of the future, not only for his congregation, but for himself. Now let me just pause and make sure that you're understanding this is pretty relevant today. Maybe not in the extreme in this country, praise the Lord. But around the world, in many cases, this is an exact scenario, and certainly in our country, we can feel things heating up. 
We can feel that this us against them, or let me just say it better, them against us kind of a mentality that, that's brewing. And so Paul writes this, this then to not just to comfort, but to strengthen his son in the faith, Timothy. By the way, as Paul's writing this, he himself has once again been imprisoned only this time it's not a comfortable house arrest. This time he's in the cold, dank, dark dungeon of a Roman prison. And this will probably be the last time that he'll see the light of day. And so Paul's writing from, from an experiential, right? He's not sitting on, you know, on, on his high horse or sitting in a comfortable place, writing to a young guy who's struggling. He's in the fight. He's in the struggle. And he's trying to strengthen the faith. And so here's what we're going to find this morning. In the first couple of verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to find two very strong, very imperative directives that he's going to give Timothy right off the bat. Hey, listen, before you do anything else, you got to do this. And you have to do this. And I just want to tell you, because it's not as obvious when you're reading, when you're studying this in the Greek language, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to use some of the study tools. Listen, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is something that he, in the strongest language, in the strongest urging, he's saying, you have to do this. If you're going to learn to man up, and you're going to live strong and straight, and you're going to find victory in a life in Christ in the midst of challenging, chaotic times. Here's the first two things you have to do. And once we see those two things, then he's going to give the three different examples, or let me say it this way, he's going to put you in three different mindsets. The reason you have to do these two things is because life is like, and life is also like, and life is also like, and when you see those two things in light of those three mindsets, all of a sudden you'll understand why Timothy is being coached or being commanded by Paul to insert these things because it's what's going to literally save him and the people that he's around. So very serious text, very sobering text, very relevant for today, uh, but we're going to do it in a way that brings, that brings uh, energy and that brings faith and uh, victory to our spirit. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, is everybody with me? All right, that was quite an introduction, I know, but I got your mind right where I need to be, and so let's read it with those eyes. This is Paul writing to Timothy, you therefore, my son... Remember, this is written from a father's heart. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That word strong is really, really important. And if we don't kind of pull something out of it, you know, it just says, you know, kind of, hey, toughen up, man. Come on, come on. Get, pull yourself up. You know, be, be strong. Don't, don't, be, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. You be strong. But this word strong comes from a Greek word that, that literally gives a picture of, this, of an explosive kind of power that's being infused or deposited into some kind of a container or a vessel. So like for us, think about a battery. A battery has the opportunity to be infused with a power and hold that charge that can now be used somewhere else. Only in this particular case, Timothy's the battery. Timothy's the vessel. And Paul is telling him here, saying, listen, I know that life is draining you. I know that every day you can hardly get out of bed because the problems, the challenges, the fear, the confusion, the anxiety is swirling everywhere. But he said, I'm telling you, the first thing you need to do is get charged up. First thing you need to do is plug in and be energized with power. But listen, Paul also knew that especially when you're feeling drained, you have a tendency to feel like I don't even have the energy to do that. 
or I don't deserve, you know, to whatever's going to refresh, whatever's going to reboot me. How can I deserve that? I'm failing. I should be, you know, I should be doing better than this. And all that stuff will just beat you down and grind you down. And so Paul adds a phrase. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that's a really important phrase too, as important as strong, because the term in the grace tells us two things. One, it's translated elsewhere, be strong by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not telling you, come on, man, toughen up. Come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Quit acting like a little girl, you know. Jump up. And by the way, those are things my dad would say to us growing up. So, but, but he would, you know, he's not trying, telling him, you, you need to pull it back up. He's telling him, listen, I'm telling you, you have to plug yourself in to a supernatural infusion of God's power. You will not be able to do this on your own. You can't talk yourself into it. You can't encourage yourself enough. You're going to have to plug into a supernatural power. But here's the second thing it tells us because it's in the grace, emphasis on the word grace, the the Greek word gades, it means this is not something that comes or is available to you because you deserve it. In fact, you could never have deserved it. You can never earn it on your best day. You still don't deserve it, but it's a free gift that was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a free gift that's made available to anybody, especially his family members who will lean into this. And by the way, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 tells us it's a gift that you can obtain and you can charge, listen, when you need it the most. When the light is on flashing and you're at 2% and you can hardly get out of bed, that's when you need to plug in the most. And that's not when God's saying, well, if you'd have done what I told you to, you know, you'd be doing better. I don't know if you deserve this now. No, that's when you need to plug into the power of the grace of God and let him charge your battery all the way back up to full fruition again. In fact, I would suggest you do what most of us do now with our electronic devices. You're plugging in every day routinely. On, on busy days, you're plugging in throughout the day. You're always looking for an outlet. Where's something I can plug in? I know I'm on 50%, but I got a busy afternoon. I don't want to lose charge. And so you're plugging in. This is what Paul's telling him. You have to plug into supernatural power. Here's truth number one about being a real man. Real men draw their strength from the Lord. That's just true. Listen, even if you're not in in the sacred realm, now the world understands there's something spiritual about life, and they'll say that maybe a real man draws their strength from something beyond themselves. But the Bible helps us to understand that. Nope, the only source of true strength in the world comes from the Lord. In fact, Isaiah 40, 31 says this, but those that wait on the Lord, and the word wait is not just kind of sitting patiently twiddling your thumbs. It means those that are attentive to those that are, that are watching, those that are, that are connected with the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And I love this last part. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In other words, I don't care what kind of an infusion of strength you need. Whether you need something quick and immediate, like a fast charge because you've got to sprint somewhere and you need it right now. Or you need the kind of power that's going to just last and last and land because you're going to be walking this long journey and you can't afford to, to, to give out somewhere in the middle of the, of, the, of the journey. It says it doesn't matter whether it's quick, doesn't matter whether it's long term, you can plug into the strength of the Lord and the Bible says it will mount you up. You'll be able to sail on top rather than being beaten down underneath. Well, he goes on after the first truth. He goes on in verse number two and he says, and, or in other words, listen, the first one's the first one. You got to plug in. 
You're not going to find this anywhere else. You can't vacation enough. You can't hobby enough. You can't work out enough. You can't eat right enough. All those things are wonderful, but you can't do any of that to replace the strength of the Lord. You're going to have to tap into the strength of the Lord. And once you've done that, the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, there's a pretty fundamental and an obvious lesson that he's telling Timothy, a pastor, you know, get charged up so that you can turn around and keep preaching and keep teaching and keep investing in the leaders. But when you lean in just a little bit, there's an even uh, kind of a deeper, uh, a few more insights that we we can glean that's helpful to us as dads uh, and as husbands. The word commit is this compound word in the Greek called peritithomai. The first part of the word means to come alongside of, and in this particular passage, it's talking about close relationships. So not relationships that are just acquaintances, but relationships that are connected and investing. The second part of the word tithomai literally means to place or to lay something down. When you put the two words together, it means to come as close as you can get in order to make some kind of a deposit. So think about you know walking into your local bank and bringing a large sum of money and you're literally walking it in there to connect with the teller, to hand it to him or her so it can get deposited in the bank. That, that's what it's talking about, but specifically here. Paul's telling Timothy, listen to me, the times have changed. The seasons have changed. You've got to reassess. You've got to be thinking about relationships. You can't be hurt. You can't be frustrated about those relationships that are now distancing, about the ones you've had to literally walk away from and disconnect, not turning your back on the people, but turning your back on the values and the convictions that have now you know, found two different pathways. He said, you're going to have to make yourself vulnerable all over again. And you're going to have to reassess in a different season, in a different context, and begin investing yourself in a new group of people. In fact, listen to the RIV translation of this verse. It says, you need to choose some new people who have proven themselves faithful. Pull up alongside of these people. Get as close as you can to them uh, so that you can deposit everything you are and everything you know into them. And that brings us to truth number two. If you want to be a real man, real men surround themselves with people of like faith. Now, there's scriptures all over the Bible to support these. Let me just give you one that we pull up often because of, of our spiritual family connection. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Listen, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, lots of people in the culture that are doing this, but he says, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So those are the two things that, that Paul tells this young son in the faith in a crisis, chaotic, perilous situation. He said, there's two things, and listen, I'm not asking you, I'm not saying, well, here's a couple things you consider. Paul says, I'm commanding you, I'm ordering you, I'm kind of pulling my spiritual father card, and I'm saying, do this, and do it real quick, and do it very intentionally. Number one, keep yourself charged with God's supernatural power. Find a way to do that. Whatever you got to do, plug in every day, all day, whatever it takes, you've got to be tapped in to the power of the grace of God that's available. You won't make it otherwise. Number two, he says, get connected with others who have chosen to remain consistent and committed to their faith. If you will do this, then you will have a supernatural ability and a supernatural camaraderie to man up. 
and to live strong and victorious life for Christ no matter what's going on. So there's the two we need to grab hold of. Now we're going to find a few more truths as he says, let me give you several mindsets or several examples that you're going to encounter so you can apply these two to these particular mindsets. Look at verse 3. In chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, let me kind of pull a few of these definitions out again, because it's a pretty good principle right there. But when you really understand what he's saying, all of a sudden, man, it just galvanizes on another level. I'm kind of going to go to the back to the front, so don't be confused. When he says hardship, he's not talking about an inconvenience. He's not talking about something that's just you know, uh, uncomfortable for you. He's talking about something that is extremely foul, something that's extremely wicked, something that is really messing things up that never should have been there in the first place. This is something coming from the outside to the inside. It's not something you planted or you invited. It's something that you never intended to. And when he says you need to endure that, that particular word paints a picture of extreme suffering or an extreme pressure or an extreme stress. And it usually talks about mental or emotional or spiritual pressure that more, more so than physical. So this is not necessarily something that's physically punishing you, but it's those things that are keeping you up at night. Those things that might not even be part of your life, but you can see them brewing out here and you're, you're awake at night, Lord, what do I need to do to prepare? How do I protect my family? How do I protect my job? How do I protect my income? How do I protect this? How do I steward that? And all of those kinds of things that are creating a building pressure, which by the way, Paul elsewhere uh, in 1 Timothy talks about the fact that we'll get to the place where men's hearts will begin to fail them because of the fear of the things that are about to come. They'll be looking at the outside and they're like, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know how to do it. And, and it's not even the thing that's happening. It's what might happen. It's what could happen. And all of a sudden that fear begins to build up. And so Paul says, you need to keep yourself charged. You need to keep yourself connected with other people of like faith that will encourage you and will sharpen you and will say, whoa, whoa, you step back from the ledge. Step back. Let's see what the word of God says about this. And he says, and you need to recognize you're in a fight. It's not, this is not playtime. This is not a game. This is not some kind of a, you know, strategy. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's not at all what's going on. He says, you're going to be in hardship and that's going to create an internal pressure and real men understand that. So they charge up, they get a camaraderie around them to help them to stand strong and to walk straight. But he said, it's still going to be a test of endurance. But I want you to notice the first two words. He says, you therefore, and this is the one you'd never see unless you kind of dig a little bit deeper, it, that's one word in the Greek and it comes from the word soon. And it literally means together. It, it, it always connects someone with someone else or something with someone else. In fact, the English Standard Version is one of the only ones that brings this out. It says, share in the suffering as a good soldier in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what Pastor Timothy was feeling? He's high, high value on the target list. 
He's got people that every week that are just dropping out. The tide dollars are going down. He's trying to figure out how do you support the ministry endeavors that, that people are counting on now, especially in hard times. He's got his own leaders that have their own ideas and are now, you know, not supporting but usurping and preaching different gospels. And again, he doesn't know if at any minute that, he's, that the door's going to bust open and he's going to be drug into some scenario or into an arena and made an example of. Can you imagine the pressure that this young guy is feeling? And listen, how isolated and alone he feels. Nobody understands this. And Paul's telling him, listen to me. He said, I know you feel that, but you need to get charged up in the Lord. You need to begin to gather and invest people around you. And you need to recognize you're not alone in this fight. You're not. You have to reassess, you have to recharge, you have to regroup, and you have to join the other wor worshipers, by the way, who are right around you, who are in the fight with you, facing the same kind of evils of the day. And listen, he said, even still, sometimes you're going to have to undergo some suffering. Sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. You're in a fight of faith, but you've got to stay in this fight because that's how we get the job done. Now, he's not finished with this mindset. Let's look at verse number four. He says, no one engages in warfare. In other words, verse number three is you're in a war. Stop trying to say, if I can just get everything done, everything will be fun and wonderful. Well, not in the current season. He says, you're in a war, and he said, no one engages in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. And look at the word entangles. That's really, really important because it gives two pictures. The first picture, it talks about somebody who has stepped off a path, and as they stepped off a path, they didn't understand, but they found themselves weed walking into a big patch of thorns, and that thorns now has grabbed their legs and grabbed their shoelaces and grabbed their pants, or back then the New Testament garb was, you know, kind of a robe. It's just grabbed everything, and the more they try to struggle to get out, the more the thorns lock in, and they're literally stuck. They have to have someone come help them. The second thing that it's showing, though, is in the New Testament garb, this was a particular term that was used for people who were trying to run a race or were trying to engage in a fight, but hadn't pulled their robe up and tied it around their waist, and as they took off running, their robe just gets all tangled up like a lady that's running in a long dress. Nope, they're not hiking it up, and they get all tangled up, and it trips them up, and that's what he's saying. And Paul's telling Timothy, listen to me, you have to be intentional. You have to be very, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of things that can bring temporary relief, a lot of fun things that, that can be refreshing, a lot of family things that, that can, you know, can build momentum and build memories. By the way, if, if they're good things, then all those things are wonderful. But he said, a real man has to be really careful that you don't get so tangled up in that stuff that you lose sight of what's priority. You got to stay charged up and you got to stay connected to other people who are in this fight with you. Because if you're not careful, you'll get a little bit of breathing room, and the next thing you know, you're wandering off of the path, and you're all tangled up with the affairs of this life. And listen to me, you will not be able to stay in the fight because you're too tangled up with stuff. I, I think about people now, and, and I love them, and I, and I remember when we were trying to make some of those same decisions, I think the Lord helped us to make most of them right. Some of them, you know, we had to come back and recalibrate, but I, I think about the challenges now in raising a family. So many things to do. That time can be so swallowed up that literally your heart wants to spend time with God. You don't have time. I'm, I, I would love to, Pastor, but I'm, you don't understand how busy life is with a family, and I, I do get that. 
And I'm not suggesting, I'm not telling you I have the one, two, three slick practicals to figure that out for you. I'm just saying Paul says you have to stay charged up. You have to stay connected to others who are in the fight with you. And you've got to remember you're in a fight. Don't get tangled up with stuff that's going to pull your focus away. If you're going to win the battle, it's because you're going to fight. Truth number three, real men stay focused in the fight of faith. Verse number five, he says, and also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rule. Well, that word competes is really important because whenever it was used in the Bible, it was used to distinguish doing something that was a sporting event for fun as opposed to doing it as a professional athlete. In other words, it's competition. I'm not doing this, well, you know, everybody gets a trophy. No, no, I'm actually challenging myself and I'm challenging the others that are in this particular competition. And so Paul's asking Timothy a rhetorical question. He's saying, so are you an amateur at this? Are you doing this because it was fun, because it was popular, because it gave you, you know, the kind of the, the, the thrill and the fulfillment, or are you doing this because you're a professional and therefore you're willing to pay the price? You're willing to recognize this is going to cost you to have to discipline yourself. It's going to cost you to have to have certain rhythms while everybody else is doing something else. You've got to be doing what you need to do in order to stay charged, in order to stay connected, in order to invest, in order to be invested in. You're going to have to be thinking about that because you're in the middle of a competition. And if you don't do that, you won't make it to the finish line. You won't. But if you do, notice this. He says, if you do, there's a crown that's waiting for you. And this word crown is really important uh, for them, but also for us. In the ancient games, when you, when you won a particular competition, you would stand on the box, much like we do now, and they would put a wreath of leaves around your head. The leaves themselves weren't really that valuable, but the honor that came with that was, if you won a big enough competition for the rest of your life, you were honored as someone who, who won that competition. Not only you, but your whole family was honored and respected and, and in many times taken care of. And listen to me, we look at this and we say, this is not, not just true back then, this is true for us today and it's true for eternity. Think about the people in your life that you have respected and revered. It had nothing to do with the salary they make. It had nothing to do with one particular event or one particular thing. It was the fact that maybe in that particular event or on that particular occasion, they modeled a conviction, they modeled a value, they modeled a steadfastness, and they did it unflinchingly. It, when everybody else was walking away, they didn't flinch. They were willing to speak truth. They were willing to, to stay steady, to walk in integrity, and, and to walk in strength. And that made them revered and honored. By the way, that's not just here. But the Bible said when we get to eternity, that goes up a whole nother level. There's a crown waiting for you because you stood strong. Here's truth number four then. Real men keep their eyes on the eternal prize. Not just about here. It's not who, who, who has the most toys, who's the most popular, who's the funnest. It's the one who's walking and running their race with integrity, with not, not flinching, but representing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the Bible says that this comes. So here's what we got. Okay? We've got our convictions, our commands. 
recharge. You got to stay charged. I don't care what it takes. You figure it out. Plug in every day, all day, whatever it takes. You got to plug into the grace of the Lord. It's available. There's no excuse other than you just being intentional and asking the Lord to help you. Then you got to surround yourself. Even if you got to pick a whole nother group, even if it's time to reinvest because you've pulled back, you've got to surround yourself and be connected with other people who are in the fight because you need them to infuse in you. And by the way, part of your growth is you infusing back into them. You need that life cycle. And you're going to need it, number one, because you're in a fight. And you're going to have to endure some stuff. And you want people that are right there with you, who are in the fight with you. You're not by yourself. Number two, because you're running a race. And it's going to take some discipline. It's going to take you saying no and paying the price for you to be able to have the strength and the ability to keep running strong when everybody else is checking out and doing this kind of for fun when it's convenient. You don't get to do that if you want to be crowned. Here's the last one. And this is where we start to bring it to a close. Verse six, the hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crop. So obviously when it says a farmer, that's an actual word in the Greek and it means one who tills the soil. So it's someone who's working down in the dirt, who's trying to produce something where nothing is currently there. But not only that, he says the hardworking farmer, and this is a very intentional word that's used throughout the New Testament. And it always pictures someone who is working to the end of their strength. In other words, they don't leave anything on the table. They leave everything on the field. They're working to the point of physical and emotional and spiritual exhaustion. And so we know this is arduous. We know he's talking about a real farmer, not just someone who has a little backyard garden who does it for fun. This is someone who's doing this for a living. But here's where I really want your attention. He said that the farmer must be the first to partake of the fruits. And this little Greek word, day, always conveys the idea of a rule to which there is absolutely no exception. This is a particular rule or a principle that can never, ever be broken. And we see it show up a number of times in the New Testament, but listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, where Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Listen. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And so what it's saying is that not only are we in a war and you got to be able to fight, not only are you in a race and you better train and discipline well, but he says, listen to me, you're sowing something that won't be always a quick return. You're going to have to be out in the dirt with the sun. It's going to be muddy. It's going to be parched. You're going to plant. You're going to work all day. You're going to put some water on it and you're going to walk away and you turn around and look over your shoulder and all you have is a puddle of mud. And you think, is that all I get? But you're going to have to stay with it and stay with it and you let it grow and you're pulling weeds and you're sticking fertilizer on it and you're making, making sure that it stays watered. And at some point, the Bible says, listen to me, you have to experience what God says. He's not mocked. When you sow, you will reap. Here's truth number five. Real men expect godly rewards. We get that we're laying our life down today for something that we'll reap in 20 years. We're laying our lives down with our children today for something that when they're adults, we'll start seeing the fruit, but you may not see any of it till then. But we show up and we work and we plant and we, we till and we pull weeds and thoughts and ideas out and replace them with the word of God. And we do that because we are guaranteed by the Lord, this will pay off someday. It has to pay off because we don't sow and then not reap. God promised we wouldn't. This is a rule that can never be broken. Here's the last one, and it's kind of the summarization of all of us, and you'll see the reason I included it. Verse number seven says, consider what I say. This is Paul summing everything up. 
Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Well, first of all, the word consider doesn't mean, okay, slow down and read carefully. He means, no, put it together. You got two commands that are imperative. These are not optional, and you've got to take those two commands, get charged up, stay charged up, surround yourself with other people that are in the battle, invest into them, let them invest into you, build a camaraderie, and then take that into these mindsets, number one, because you're in a fight, and you're going to have to endure some stuff, but remember, you're not in the fight alone, and when you fight with a team, when you fight with a group of skilled, highly skilled men and women, you can win some battles, and so fight right. Not only that, but you're in a race, and this race has rules. You don't get the shortcut. You don't get to compromise. You don't get to lie, cheat, steal, and change the narrative. You get to walk strong. You get to train, and you get to believe that there's a crown waiting for you because at some point, even though people laugh at you now, even though you'll lose a deal, even though you may not be in the in crowd, at some point, people will look back and say, you know, I always respected you. I always looked to you. And not only that, when you get to heaven, you'll hear your, 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 your Savior say, well done, well done, well done, Here, here's your crown. But then he comes, and then he comes to the last one and he said, and you're going to have to be a farmer. Something's got to get you out of bed and drag you out to the field every day. Something's got to pull you to show your devotions to sow more seed. Something's got to pull you into conversations with your teenagers because that's messy. I don't really want to get into it. I'm not even sure I understand it. Then go figure it out and go ask the Lord for wisdom. And lean back into this because somebody's got to work the farm if you want to reap the benefits. And the last thing he says, and I want you to think about all that. Think about all of it. It's like, wow, that's a lot of, lot of, lot of moving parts. He says, but think deeply. The word consider noeo, it means to think deeply, to ponder it. Let these things be what's saturating or marinating your thought process and your prayers as you're trying to navigate all of these things happening. And listen, when you do, listen, he says the Lord will give understanding in all things. The word understanding is the word synesis uh, in the Greek. It's still kind of an English word. And it means to take a whole bunch of parts that don't seem like they're all connected, but all of a sudden to pull them all, and all of a sudden you can start seeing how it all makes sense when it comes together. You can't do this on your own. But, but he says, listen, if you'll ponder these things, if you'll stay charged up, if you'll stay connected to the right people, he said, then the Lord will come and will bring wisdom and understanding. And all of a sudden, woo, it'll all come into line. And God will help you to work out your salvation, to work out your path of leadership, to teach you how to be strong and straight. And not only will you be able to live that out, but you'll be able to share it with other people around you. And that rebuilds that camaraderie. Here's the last truth then. Real men look to God for wisdom in everything. In everything. I'm a big, really big, you know, uh, proponent of keeping up with what's going on in current events and making sure we're studying and honing our skills. But all of those are a distant backseat to the wisdom of God. We need God's wisdom. I don't need to know what people say. If I didn't have any of that stuff available to me, I would still be able to live a strong, victorious life. If I look to the wisdom of God saying, God, just tell me what to do. Lord, just tell me, which one am I doing? Which scenario am I in? Am I in a battle? Is this farming? Is this a race? What, what is this? What am I doing? Am I charging up enough? Not, not too much? Do I have the right group of people who are faithful and committed to the priorities? Are those the people around me? See, these are the kinds of questions he said. Ponder that. Think deeply. Stop being so flippant about it. And then letting other things that are maybe more immediate but more shallow, letting those preoccupy your thoughts. No, no. Think deeply about this. Let them be rolling around your heart, pondering and meditating them and saying, God, I need your wisdom. And the Bible says, listen, you will reap 
what you sow. God will give you the wisdom. It's challenging to be a real man in a culture like we live. But God needs real men. And God's designed it so we can all be the men that God called us to be because there's a world that is dying. There's a world that's hurting. I'm not saying that just, you know, at the end of a message to try to find some big flare. This is literally the truth. We have men and women, teenagers, young adults, boys and girls, eternity is hanging in the balance. And God's called you and I to be light, to be salt, to be the ones who step in and to sometimes to peel back the truth and whether they agree with it or not, say, listen, I love you to pieces, but here's what the Bible says. And you're equipped for the job. If you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a grandfather, I know it's Father's Day, but I want to address all the men. If you're a man this morning, stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. And those of you that are going to be remain seated, uh, can you stretch forth your hands, especially if you have somebody who's personally connected to you? And as I'm praying for them, would you pray for them too? Now listen, don't pray at them. God help him to pick up his clothes after he gets out of the shower. God help him. No, don't, don't pray at them. Pray for them, all right? And I'm going to be praying for them too. And then as I finish, I'm going to ask the rest of you to stand and join. And we're going to respond to the Lord in worship and give him our first priority. Father, I pray for the men that are standing here today. I don't care what stage they're in, Lord. I don't care whether they're further along in the race or just getting started. But Lord, I pray for them in the name of Jesus that you would, by the inspiration, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, teach them to energize themselves in the grace of the Lord. Lord, if you have to interrupt their appetites and totally flip those and change those, let a craving begin in their life to spend time with you, to spend time in the Word of God, to figure out how to get that as a first priority. Lord, I pray that you would order their steps and order their, their friends and their connections. Lord, would you purify those relationships? Would you begin to bring a distance to those that are not healthy? But Lord, surround them with men and women that are of like precious faith. And Lord, I pray that you would steal their courage in the fight of faith, that you would focus them, Lord, and help them to realize what's frivolous and what's really priority. Lord, I pray that you would help them, give them strength, give them stamina, enlarge their capacity, Lord, as they're running their race to keep running strong and straight and to do it understanding there's a crown that's waiting for them at their finish line. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage them that they will reap. They will reap every lying voice that says that their leadership doesn't count. It's for nothing. Nobody's listening to them. Nobody cares about them. Lord, you're watching. God is not mocked. Whatever they sow, that will they also reap. Strengthen them in that and cause a fruitfulness and a blossoming to come to their life. And Lord, I pray that you would drive every one of these men back to you, that the wisdom of God would be the highest and most valuable priority that they have and give it to them generously and abundantly like you promised you would. We bless them with this today. We charge them with this today by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. With the rest of you stand and let's all sing and worship the Lord as we finish the service today. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.